His mother awaited him, standing by the fireplace, tapping her fingers against the mantelpiece, his father sitting in a bath chair, a tartan rug over his legs, half asleep in the glow of coal. Have you moved my candlesticks? she asked. No, mother. You know how valuable they are. Two are missing. Have you sold them? Sold them, Velvine said. She had discovered his rearrangement. Yes, sold them, Velvine. Something you've done before. But you know how precious those candlesticks are to me? Well, I did not touch. You did. And God help me, I have proof. From the mantelpiece, she took a twist of paper, which she opened to reveal a small amount of cigarist ash. And he had been smoking when he rearranged the candlesticks. Mother, he said, wondering how to explain the indefensible. She raised her right hand, her face white with fury, lips compressed, eyes narrowed. Velvine Orchard Tide, you are banished from this family, from this very house. You are banished from Orchard Tide Manor also. You are banished from Orchard Tide Fairings, from the church, and from the entire Scottish estate. You are banished from the chateau in Lyon. You are banished forever. Do you hear? His father woke up glanced across the parlour, then waved with one hand and said, Don't come back, there's a good lad. We prefer not to see you again, don't you know? His mother made the final pronouncement. You have one night to collect your personal belongings, which I shall be checking before you leave. You are a common thief, Velvine. Though God told you thou shalt not steal, you are a wastrel and a fool. I hope never to see you again. Now get out of here and go to your room. Velvine did not simply go to his room. He ran. Words reverberated around his brain. Banished forever. Entire Scottish estate. He collapsed into a chair as full realisation hit. How would he survive? Where would he go? Suddenly he felt rage inside him. He hated his parents. He hoped they would die soon. They were old enough. They should be pushing up the daisies in a decade or so. Perhaps he should help them along. No, that way was madness. And there was quite enough madness in his family. But he had one night to plan his exit. He could take a few things yet. Nothing obvious. None of the gold icons, for instance, though they were worth a fortune and could sustain a lifetime of gallivanting. But enough to keep him alive for a few years. And, of course, he could stay in rooms at the suicide club. Midnight did not lie too far away. He undressed and prepared for bed, deciding that he would pack in the morning after a good breakfast and a decent shave, and a bath, of course. Sleep came, and then the dreams. He twisted in his bed, the sheets winding themselves around his body, climbing up the steps of orchard-tide manor, running in terror through valleys of fir, playing shove-badminton with his mother in the pear garden, 
shaving himself until his skin was pink as a strawberry blancmange, looping the loop in an implausible Archimedean floating system, showing Lilibet spoonworthy his chest hairs, unbuttoning his waistcoat, buttoning it again, unbuttoning, buttoning, unbutton, button, unbutton. Jesus, there was blood on his fingers. Sigismund! He jumped into the air as the nightmare halted and he awoke. Sweat poured from his body, all the sheets damp, an odour of smoke in the air from a cigarist that had gone out, and it was already five in the morning. He dozed, woke, dozed, and the clock struck seven. Somebody hammered on his door. Rolene, you have one hour! His mother, wide awake, he panicked, throwing clothes, shoes, oddments, papers into a leather rucksack that he had bought in Kathmandu. No time for breakfast. No time for a bath, even. He had to shave, though. But in his bathroom stood a figure. It did not move. It seemed to be made of clay. Lumpy legs, lumpy arms, barrel body and a lump of a head. No features. Nor even any way to determine if it was man or woman. What on earth was it? No time to investigate. He prepared his soap, brush and razor, then shaved, dropping the implements into a bag once he'd finished. He glanced into the mirror. Pale face. Definitely going a bit thin on top. Was he losing his looks? He was almost forty. No time to dawdle. He turned to face the figure. It commanded him, stared without face, without expression, without eyes, as if demanding an explanation, forcing questions and answers. He grabbed it, found that it was not too heavy to carry, and placed it beside his rucksack. Now for the escape. He opened the door and listened. Voices and clinking cutlery downstairs, the sounds of his parents having breakfast. Both his brothers away, one in Ely Cathedral, one in Lincoln Cathedral. No servants upstairs, two maids in the kitchen. Effectively, he stood alone. He crept along the corridor to the skylight, grabbing the stepladder, setting it up, then opening the skylight and poking his head through to see, lying in its frost-limbed rack on the roof, the bovine Archimedean floating system that he had bought earlier in the year. The cud-chewing machinora, he was pleased to see, looked in perfect condition. Without delay, he returned to his room, pulling his rucksack onto his back, grabbing a few final things, wallet, penknife, storm lanternette, then creeping into the corridor and into his father's bedroom. There, a gold crucifix, a silver guillotine tray from Parisi, and a set of diamond-encrusted spigots, all saleable. He crept out again, but the tray, being awkward, somehow fell from his grip and with multiple crashes bounced down the stair. The sound of voices from the breakfast parlour stopped. He ran, back to the roof. He threw everything into the Machinora's wicker capacity, then returned to his bedroom. He heard his mother call, heard her feet thunking on the stairs as she ascended. Velvine, what are you doing? 
He grabbed the clay figure and manhandled it along the corridor, climbing the stepladder and pulling it onto the roof, just as his mother's head appeared over the banister. Velvine, you thief! she screeched, waving the dented tray. Come back here! He tried to kick the stepladder away but missed. No time to lose. He carried the figure to the machinora, hauled it into the wicker capacity, then turned to see his mother emerge onto the roof just ten yards away. He primed the bovine he torix, then cast off, cutting the two restraining ropes with his penknife. The machinora floated up. His mother launched herself at the machinora, grabbing the flailing end of a rope and pulling it. Come back here, you thief! I'll whip you myself! Stop, Velvine! Stop this at once! Goodbye, mother, he shouted back. I most cordially loathe you. You say you shall never see me again. Well, that means I shall never see you. And that fills me with joy. Do you hear? You useless man, you're no son of mine. I'll have you excommunicated. I do not care since you have banished me. I am free to go where I please. May God have mercy on your soul, she shrieked as the rope slipped from her grasp. Goodbye and thank you for everything. With that, the machinora rose with resonant lowing into the heavens, leaving a trail of part-chewed grass that splattered in a line along the roof. Cornucope Weatherby led his wife Eustatia to the Chancery Lane underground station, where, one hundred feet down, they awaited the last equicade of the night going to Hampstead. Cornucope glanced down at her. She was more than two decades younger than him. Would she regret the lunatic wager he'd made at the suicide club? Or would she welcome it as a change from tedious home life? Dearest one, he said, you're probably wondering why I did it. She looked up at him, smiled, then turned away. I will wonder later, she replied. At the moment, I just want to get home. Your runner interrupted my sewing. Yes, yes, my apologies. There seemed to be nothing more to say. So Cornucope said nothing. With a clatter of metal on metal, the equocade drew up, its engine legs a blur of coal-fired motion. Steam hissed in billowing clouds from rubber-ringed nostrils, and from the rear ends of the engine came thunderous blasts of carbon dioxide. Mind the crap! Mind the crap! called the auto voice over the tannoy. There was a rustle and a click as the operator put the needle back to the beginning of the wax cylinder. Mind the crap! Mind the crap! Cornucope opened a carriage door and helped Eustatia inside. They sat down next to one another in a carriage empty apart from a bejeweled hussy reading a copy of Harlot Times. Cornucope tapped Eustatia's thigh and smiled at her to reassure that she was safe. She smiled back, but seemed to be thinking more about her sewing. 
Pistons screeched as the dual engines powered up, then the brake was released. The carriage jerked forward and they were away, rolling along the moon-bright steel tracks of the up-northern line. The hussy got off at Chalk Farm, proffering her broadsheet as she did. But Cornucope, who had never once been strumpeteering, waved a forefinger at her in refusal. They got off at Hampstead, allowing the midget-pulled escalator to take them up to ground level. Fresh air at last. A delight after the fumes and steam of the underground. Ten minutes later, they stood at the front door of their house in East Heath Road. It was almost midnight, and the house showed no lights. The heath itself lay dark beneath the moonless sky. Owls hooted. Then a candle was switched on, and the door was opened by LaCortia Ford, their maid. Eustacia stepped inside, pressing her palms together, saying, Namaste, then ascending the stairs, leaving Cornucope to shrug and to put his top hat on the hatstand. I believe she was annoyed that her sewing was interrupted, he said. Will there be anything else? Cornucope shook his head. Thank you so much for staying here, Miss Ford. You may begin at noon tomorrow. Oh, thank you. Good night. Cornucope watched the maid depart the house, then shut and bolted the door. What a very strange evening it had been. Next morning, he got up early, knowing that LaCortia would not be present to make the breakfast. He poured hot milk onto shredded beet, dropped sugared almonds into bowls, then made tea. The final touch, a pair of raspberry doodahs that he found at the back of a cupboard. With this repast, he walked upstairs to the bedroom. Dearest one, he said, I gave LaCortia the morning off, so I have prepared breakfast for us. Thank you, Cornucope, what a surprise. She seemed in a better mood today. They ate, drank their tea, and then Cornucope cleared away the bowls and trays. I do not intend to go so far as to wash up, however, <laughs> he joked. What exactly is this wager you joined last night? I remember Pantomile's very words, he replied. If, one season from today, one of us returns to the suicide club with an explanation of human love that mankind, from east to west, can accept, they will take the pot. That is what he said. And you said to me, this is a test of our marriage that we can't ignore? Yes, yes, I did, he admitted. And your meaning? Dearest one, we both agree that our marriage has become a trifle stale. It was an unpleasant realization and a difficult one to admit to. And since then I've been racking my brains to think of some method, some venture that would allow us to rekindle the spark we felt twenty years ago.